Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey guys, every single day the world is taking drastic new measures to slow down the spread of COVID-19. I had a chance to speak with a doctor working tirelessly on the front lines of emergency rooms during this pandemic. Her name is Dr. Clody Bullduke. She is an emergency senior resident based in Los Angeles, and she tells us how we can stay safe, how long is this going to last, and how widespread the disease really is. So let's get right into it. Hi, Clody. How are you? All things considered, I'm good. <laughs> we have been wanting, I don't know, the last 72 hours. We thought you and I, uh, we've been friends in the LA area for a while, and we thought, you know what? <laughs> we need to have this emergency podcast because things are escalating kind of quickly uh, mm -hmm. in the world, and there's a lot of people that, like myself, are a little concerned. And when we spoke on the phone the other day, I said, you know, there's two types of people out there. There's the type of person that's not taking this serious enough. People that are going to bars, going to pubs, going to theaters, and by the way, won't be going for very much longer. And then mm -hmm. there's the other type. There's the type of person that's completely freaking out, um, hoarding toilet paper, and <laughs> removing any produce on the stock for fear of the apocalypse. Um, honestly, Erin, that's, that's a great way to put it, is that this is kind of a spectrum of reaction. And I think that as physicians, we're somewhere in the middle in the sense that we are um, you know, trying to apply reason and um, knowledge and our rational mind to this problem, but it's a serious problem. And it will be more serious if um, people don't act now and if people ignore it until things really get out of control. And so as physicians, I think we do know that we are prepared we know the threat that's coming. We know we're going to see an explosion of cases in the next couple of weeks, um, even more so in the next week before all of these um, measures that the government is taking had really had a chance to impact the transmission of the virus. Um, but at the same time, we're not panicked. And I think that that's the important piece to feel here is that it's not a panic. Panic is not helpful. I, I want people to stop feeling that panic. And when you go into empty grocery stores and everyone's wearing masks and not really looking at each other even in the eye anymore, it's easy to feel that panic and feed on it. And I think that that's where we really need to put um, a stop is that there, it's not helpful to panic here. It can cause more harm than good if people show up to emergency rooms because they're having anxiety and they think maybe they can't breathe because they're so nervous about things versus having real symptoms. But, you know, as you and I even spoke about earlier today, the flip side of that is you know, people who shall remain nameless who get sent home from, from work because this is a serious thing and they go around around town and, and go visit friends and then go to the, you know, the only open ice cream shop in LA right now and, you know, may not be taking it as seriously. And, and I know a lot of especially young people who have been receiving the message that this is for them not going to be a big deal that are really not taking it seriously and going to bars and are upset that these measures are, are being put in place. And 
that is the other extreme and that's not safe because they're going to propagate the transmission of this disease at a rate that we just can't deal with. And that's the scary thing is people like you and I that are young may not feel the symptoms, but I was having a conversation with a buddy of mine who was, you know, kind of like, well, I'm not really worried because, you know, I'm young, I'm healthy. I don't surround myself with, you know, elderly people. But let's say I, I see that friend at work or wherever, and now his or her carelessness about, oh, I'm not really worried about getting it, gets it to me, and I don't know I have it, and I'm running groceries for my family, for my parents, for my 91-year-old aunt. And so isn't that enough to really concern yourself if you are a young person that's like, well, at the end of the day, if I get it, I get it. It's really not harming me. But they don't realize the potential impact it could have on these immune-compromised individuals. Yeah, I mean, it, it should be. It should be something that young people are taking into consideration. Of course, not everybody thinks that way, and that's unfortunate. I think we really have to step up here and know that we have to be socially responsible, but unfortunately, not everyone thinks that way. Um, but young people really do need to take this seriously because although they might be fine, what we know about the disease right now is there is a period of time, even if you are going to get a little sick, like fever, coughing from this. There's a period of time, maybe five to seven days, where you feel no symptoms at all. And at least two or three of those days before you start feeling symptoms, you're able to transmit that to people, even though you feel completely fine. And those people can then transmit it to their loved ones, their parents. And even if you don't interact with elderly people or people with comorbidities, maybe they do. And right now, the way the disease is spreading, because so many people don't feel symptoms or the young and healthy don't really get severe disease, each person who's infected is infecting on average 2.2 more people. Now, that's just not a sustainable rate of growth. If every person infects 2.2 more people, you're going to see a lot more of that disease getting into those vulnerable populations. And those populations um, will get sick at the same time and overwhelm our hospital resources. Now, I asked you this yesterday, and it's so hard to project, but you gave me a really interesting answer because you were saying yesterday, you know, you know one person is potentially impacting or affecting or infecting, excuse me, two to four people. Um, you just said 2.2, right, is what it's right. at right now, which is, you know, it's what is that, a 50% or no? So that that's, I mean, that's our current estimate based on what we're seeing the growth at. So yesterday when I spoke to you, it was 3,111 known positive coronavirus tests. Per the information that we have now, and now this is today, this is not in the future, uh, we are having this conversation. As of now, 4,143 people in the United States has, has it. In your expert opinion, how widespread do you believe this is as of today? So today we know about 4,100 cases, as you just said, in the United States. You have to factor in how do we know about those cases. We know those cases because we're testing them. And it's not a secret. It's been on all over the news. We do not have a lot of tests. We are very much limiting who we are testing. So if we know about 4,100 cases and we're only testing really severe cases out there, 
then there's a huge what we call severity bias in that there's a lot of asymptomatic or mild cases out in the community. And if you want to extrapolate the fact that we look at studies and about 10% of cases um, tend to at least go to the hospital and get hospital care, and currently those are the people that we're testing, then if 4,100 is 10%, then we're talking about at least 40,000 cases in the United States right now. Wow. And if you can compare what we're doing to what we are seeing in Italy, are we, because you mentioned a lot and we need to get into that. You mentioned the flatten the curve. So for people that are like, I see it all the time. I don't really know what that means. Can you kind of give us an idea of like, are we doing the best we can to quote unquote, like Dr. Anthony Fauci says, blunt the peak um, for people that aren't sure what that means. Um, I think people are, 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 are curious about it. And then also within that question, because you made a great point when we talked about it yesterday is when we blunt this or flatten the curve, because we also want to discuss timing, right? How long are we going to be quarantined mm-hmm. or, or, or self quarantined for this moment? Um, how, how much longer does that make the disease last? Yeah, that's, a really good question. And honestly, that is the concept that everyone has to understand right now is that flatten the curve tagline that you're going to see everywhere. The reason for that is the virus itself, our best estimates in the scientific community right now is that it may have a mortality rate around 0.6%. Now that is an estimate. We are so early. We don't have all the information. It's an estimate. And in comparison to the flu, for example, that has a 0.1% case fatality rate. Well, this is around 0.6%. Now that is assuming that we don't overwhelm our resources, meaning every single very severe sick case can get the best possible hospital care. The problem is if we don't take it seriously and we spread it very, very rapidly, then you're gonna see a lot of severe cases all at once. And we're going to have a scenario that we're trying to avoid, which is what happened in Italy, where people are showing up to the hospitals at rates that are not sustainable. And you're having to say, I have one ICU bed. I have five people who need it. What do I do? And that's what we're trying to avoid. And so flattening the curve. So if you think of how many cases you're having per day, so first day you have 10 cases, the second day you have 200, the third day you have 1,000, the fourth day you have 10,000, that's a very steep climb in your curve. You're going to get to a point in time where you have way too many cases all at the same time. That's what we can't have. So if we stop the spread so that we're not infecting people at rates that are not sustainable, then you're lowering it. So you have, you know, one case, then 10 cases, then 100, then 500. And you never get to a point where you're overwhelming resources. The cases get dragged out over time. So let's say 10% of the American population were to get this all together. Let, let's say, I'm just throwing it out there, so 30 million people, we're talking about 30 million people getting it over a period of a year, 12 to 18 months, versus getting it over a period of two to four months, which would not be sustainable. 
So people that want to get tested, what are you hearing about that possibility? Because you and I have been discussing every single day that you're like, don't, because, you know, herein lies the problem. We were talking about the number of ICU beds. Well, guess what? The ICU beds would render ineffective if they don't have a doctor because the doctor's sick or they don't have a ventilator. And by the way, I have no idea if this is, is it called a ventilator or a respirator? But if you don't have- Yeah, it's a ventilator. A ventilator. So if you don't, if you, a bed is rendered useless, if you don't have a doctor to help you with it, and if you don't have the right care, so people coming in to get tested is actually making it worse, right? Absolutely. So the more people are coming in to get tested that don't have severe illness, the more they can spread it to the healthcare workers that are treating them in the emergency department. And if you have your nurse is now sick and she infected 10 nurses and now your doctor is sick and your respiratory therapist, that's a very key role in all of this that often gets left out of when we talk about our healthcare personnel. You need a respiratory therapist to help you with that vent and all the procedures that we need to do to help these people breathe. If we're all getting sick, then you've just knocked out, you know, the most important piece of this the, the resources in the hospital. So we may have, you know, 65, 70,000, I've heard all kinds of numbers, um, ventilators across the country. But if you don't have a nurse, a doctor, and a respiratory therapist to work that ventilator, it's useless. It, and, it's, and to go back to your testing, the testing piece of it, that's really important too, because there are, you know, there are a lot of suggestions out there. Should we be testing healthcare workers first? I mean, should since a lot of this is asymptomatic, should we know who has COVID in the healthcare workers so that we can quarantine them and, and stop the spread of disease that way, especially in the most vulnerable people? People have to remember that the rest of the hospital isn't shutting down when this is happening. And hospitals already run all across the U.S., pretty much at capacity. I'm sure anyone who's shown up in an ER anywhere across the country has had a great experience at one time or another, you know, waiting in a hallway for their room, or we run at capacity. And so overwhelming our resources at a time like this, when we're also still running a hospital that gets heart attacks and strokes and trauma, that's not going to end. Is, is just irresponsible. So do not show up in an emergency room for testing. And when it comes to testing, we should probably be testing our healthcare workers and the most vulnerable people who appear in the hospital first. And that's what I wanted to ask you because you're in an emergency room every day, all day. What is it like right now on the front lines in the LA area? Yeah, um, I can speak kind of generally to that and what, what I'm hearing in other places as well all across LA. I'm part of a lot of physician groups that talk about their experiences. So it's a little more um, intense, if I can use that word, in some places. Obviously, it's no secret that Washington is probably the area that is being the most um, hard hit, uh, as well as a certain part of New York. Um, they're seeing a quite uh, intense caseloads and they're not sleeping as much as they normally would. They're run down. We're not there. Um, in the LA area, we're not at that point. And we have the luxury of time in terms of seeing what happened there and preparation. And I can say that hospitals are doing a lot in terms of preparation. So we're not there, but we're gearing up. We know we're at the, the beginning of a curve and we're, we're ready. And a lot of people are wondering, and I don't know if you, I mean, we discussed flattening the curve and we discussed because you flatten the curve, 
Um, the illness will probably linger around a little bit longer, but questions, because we asked on your Instagram and my Instagram, and by the way, how can people follow you if they want to follow you for the very latest information on coronavirus? Oh, they can follow at PulseCheckMD. That's PulseCheck. We sourced questions because I think that's one of the things that you've been trying to use your social media is to tell people, stay home. Please do not go out. Please, again, reiterating all of these things. And you're really teaching people. And I am so praised with how hard you work and how tired you are that you're constantly trying to help others by, you know, just simple healthy habits and washing your hands and disinfecting and all the things that people can do to try to, you know, help keep themselves healthy. But one of the questions that we got, which is a great question, when can we expect to get back to somewhat of a normal life? That is such a tough question to answer right now. Um, but I'll, I'll give it, I'll give it my best. I think that we'll have a lot more information in one or two weeks. The reason for this, the virus we know can be asymptomatic for a week. So until, you know, really today, we weren't really taking it seriously. Maybe yesterday. We weren't taking it that seriously, and it was probably spreading like wildfire in the community. And we're going to see those cases start to appear in the emergency department only in a week from then. So it's really hard to understand how this is going to behave until about one to two weeks from now since we've implemented all these restrictions. Now, when that starts to happen, we're going to see a rapid rise in cases, and then we'll start to see, okay, how effectively did those things we've implemented, like social distancing and really, you know, isolation and asking people to basically self-quarantine for the next little while, no gatherings over 50 people, canceling birthday parties, canceling weddings, all of that, we will see how much that flattens the curve only in about two weeks. Once we have a better idea of that, then we can know, okay, we can go back to a slightly, you know, more normal life in X amount of time. My best estimate is that we need to have kind of drastic measures at least for two to four weeks like this. And then I think we'll gradually get more to more into normal life, but it, it will be a new normal because this virus is not going to disappear from, from one day to the other. That's not how it's going to act. And like we talked about with flattening the curve is you're not going to see a huge spike all at once, but you're going to draw out the cases and the transmission over time. I think another great question a lot of people have is what do you do if your work is still calling you in? Like, so in, for instance, like I work in a studio, but if no audience is there, is it still safe for me to go into work? There's city officials, although I believe in New York, they've cut 50%. What do you do if you're a city official and they call you into work? Do you still go in? Yeah, I mean, so this speaks to the transmission of the disease. So let's talk about that just for a, a moment. So unlike what a lot of people are thinking or fearing, this this is not, to the best of our knowledge, this is not a disease that just is randomly in the air. Do not go outside because you will inhale the disease. That's not how it works. And you can go into the wilderness and you can go on your beach run. It is not an aerosolized, for the most part, disease. There are exceptions to that in the hospital when we do certain procedures. But this is a disease that is transmission transmitted through droplets. Droplets means when I sneeze or cough or spit while I'm talking, 
there are little water particles, saliva, or um, coming out of my mouth and flying through the air. It can only fly as far as about six feet before gravity takes over and it falls to the ground. That's at, it, at its worst. That's how far it can get. It doesn't just linger around invisibly in the air. And so that's why the social dis distancing of six feet is so important. And that's also why when you touch surfaces, you need to wash your hands before you put them in your face so that those droplets, what we call fomites once they're on surfaces, don't go from your hands into your body. And so that being said, I can answer your question. It's not ideal. I think that for, the, for as much as possible, businesses should be closing right now and encouraging people to work from home as much as possible. But if you are in a profession where you need to go in right now, then practicing the basic hygiene, the hand washing for 20 seconds, and there's a video on my, my Instagram on how to do that properly to get the virus off, uh, washing your hands, not touching your face, and social distancing of six feet or more, then you can do your part in making sure you're not transmitting it at work. Exactly. And transmitting it, like we were discussing earlier, you can bring that home even though you're like, oh, I, I'm fine. I'm, you know, I'm middle-aged. I don't have anything to worry about. Well, guess what? You don't know if the person next to you has elderly parents or looking after elderly, you know, I have a 91 year old aunt that I try to take care of or, and I'm, I'm literally telling her to stay inside. She doesn't know what that means. She's like, I do stay inside. I'm like, no, even walking around your your nursing place is dangerous and she doesn't understand. And so that's my next question is, what is the course of action for those that are immune compromised, our parents, um, my sister-in-law is pregnant and concerned. You know, what what is the right course of action for these individuals that um, really might be, you know, nervous about something like this? Right now, while we're still learning a lot about the disease and the community transmission is here, we know it's it's out there. I think that social isolation for anyone who's in those high risk groups. So that's anyone over the age of 60 and the risk goes up with age, anybody with cardiovascular disease, lung disease, diabetes, hypertension, those are people that need to take an immunocompromised people or people on immunosuppressive therapies, such as people with organ transplants or cancers. Those people need to really take this seriously right now and socially isolate completely. So that means self-quarantining at least for the next seven to 14 days as some more information starts to come out and we see if we're starting to curb this. Right now, it's just too rampant in the community to take those risks if you're in the high-risk groups. Pregnancy, you, you touched on pregnancy. Pregnancy is an interesting state in that it's not, it's not completely immunocompromised in terms of the studies and the, the case uh, fatality rates that we're seeing. We're not seeing them there. However, you are somewhat in a you know, compromised state when you're pregnant in terms of your immune system. And so that's also a state I would prefer not to um, take chances right now um, and quarantine for, for the time being. So if we do need to go to the hospital, we should feel safe going. 
I mean, considering your, your alternatives, yes, I think it's still the safest and most prudent thing to go to the hospital. For the most part, hospitals are the most sterile places you can find. And unless you are part of a very early on outbreak city, um, hospitals have taken extra precautions to make sure that there's no transmission of this infectious disease. And for example, most hospitals have completely changed their processes to a triage process that is outside the hospital doors for anyone that is coming in with respiratory symptoms so that those people don't come into the hospital until we have more information. If they don't even need to come into the hospital, then they're seen by a doctor in whatever tented area or whatever um, makeshift processes that hospital has in place, seen and, and told to go home if they're gonna be discharged. If they're very sick, they're being admitted under the strictest of precautions with all necessary um, control of infectious spread in place. Well, that's really good to hear um, because I was wondering that too is at the very least, I'm sure they're taking the extra steps to keep themselves safe. And, you know, a rumor that's been going around about this and I've seen it from various people and I wanted to ask you, maybe we don't even know at this point, but is there a possibility to get reinfected? So we don't know for certain, but um, to the best of our knowledge right now, there aren't any actual cases of reinfection. There have been reports of those, but for as far as the scientific community and how we assess those cases, it seems to be more a problem with testing, meaning the person had COVID, recovered, and then had a positive test thereafter, not necessarily that they they got reinfected. And we can get into the logistics mm. of how tests can be faulty, but you know, tests aren't perfect. So to, to okay, the best of our, now. yeah, the best of our knowledge, once you get the infection, you create antibodies just like any, you know, viral infection and you're immune for at least the time being. And that, that's how vaccines work too. And I want to ask you what you're doing to boost your immune system. But before I get to that, we're not anywhere close because you said build antibodies to ward off disease. And I've read somewhere they're trying to use antibodies to try to create some effective treatments for this. What is the soonest you believe we would have a vaccine? And are we doing, you know, if someone in the event does in fact contract this virus, what are their means for treatment if in fact they are immune compromised? Right. So very good question. So the vaccine is about 12 to 18 months away. The reason is that we have very diligent testing of vaccines. You're injecting something into somebody's body. The first rule is you do no harm in medicine. And so there's a lot of really stringent testing that has to go on to make sure it's safe before we ever administer the first vaccine. The good news is, as part of the first phase of the trial for the vaccine, the very first participant was injected with the vaccine today. So we literally started the process today. So that's really positive. And the best estimates, as long as things go well, meaning we don't have to backtrack that there wasn't a faulty vaccine or it's not inefficient or unsafe, is about 12 months to development up to 18 months. Now, in terms of, of treatment, there there is no treatment. So right now um, what we do is a lot of these people develop really serious lung disease. It's called ARDS. It's a syndrome basically where your lungs don't function as well and essentially become flooded with fluid. Um, 
And that is not a new disease process. That is something our critical care teams are very good at treating and something that a lot of research has been focused on over the last you know, decade or more. And it's something that we treat in our ICUs every single day. Now, it's a serious disease process, don't get me wrong, but it's something that we treat every day. But we treat it with supportive care. That means ventilators, breathing for the lungs while the body recovers. It's not any magic cure or you know, antibiotic or anything that we can administer that will cure this. The things that are being tried um, are some antivirals that are pretty promising. The, the most talked about one is called remdesivir. And that one, there are five clinical trials that are being expedited and are underway right now. And um, there are some other antivirals that have been used in malaria, for example, that are also being piloted and tried at this time, as well as some immune modulating medications, because a lot of the disease process here is caused by an overreaction of the immune system. Okay, so then that leads me to another question, and I apologize if this comes off naive, but obviously I don't know the first thing when it comes to medicine. A vaccine does not get started or created or worked on until there's a known virus outbreak, right? Because I guess my question is, there's disease all over the world and potentially new disease, you know, is starting up in various regions of the world. Um, when it comes to this specific virus, are we not able to create a vaccine? Like, I guess my question is because coronavirus is within the same family of SARS and MERS, are we not able to, um, as, you know, I mean, let's be honest, doctors and, and medical staff are the smart, you know, some of the smartest people in the world. Are they not able to start a vaccine until they know what this disease is? Yeah, that's a very interesting um, question. For the most part, the answer is no. We need the actual disease to have a vaccine that will be effective against it. So we can't really put together a vaccine until we have something like COVID actually come up. We isolate its RNA, meaning it's kind of genetic material, its fingerprint, if you will. We isolate that, and then we can uh, create a vaccine from that. There are families of viruses that are similar, but there's, there's problems. First of all, the fingerprint might not be similar enough. And secondly, SARS and MERS died out so rapidly that any um, you know, efforts towards creating vaccines for them kind of died with them. And the other coronaviruses really don't cause very severe disease. They cause a mild cold um, every, you know, that you might actually catch a couple times a year, a different coronavirus, get a little sick and it goes away. So the effort and time to put into creating kind of a vaccine for the common cold, not only may not be effective because of how many different strains and mutations there are, but just may not be worth it. And I apologize. I know it sounds like a ridiculous question. Well, why don't you have a vaccine? now when you don't even have the disease but you know it just for me as someone who has no idea with what you guys do on a day-to-day -day basis once an outbreak and gosh forbid pending the severity of the disease once an outbreak is out there it just seems like a 12 to 18 month vaccine might be a little late in the game um so i just wasn't sure how the medical experts in the world of infectious disease 
how they handle when, you know, we're probably going to see with the population growing more and more outbreaks like this. And potentially, sadly enough, they might be more and more severe as we grow as a population worldwide. I completely agree with you. And, you know, if we don't take lessons from, from this outbreak, it will be an opportunity lost. And so, you know, this, this is a bad outbreak, but you're, you're correct in that, you know, if we had an outbreak where we saw a disease that was as transmissible as measles, meaning someone can sneeze in an auditorium and basically almost everybody will get it. And it was as disastrous as Ebola was when it came onto the scene and, you know, kills half the people, then this is not an adequate response in both in creating a vaccine and in a public health, in terms of public health measures. And so luckily that's not what we're seeing in this emerging infectious disease. And we will learn a lot from this and scientists I'm sure actually I know are working on ways to expedite the vaccine production process but we're not there yet and certainly like you said hopefully this is a very valuable lesson we learn as a country and as a world that we need to you know sort of ally together in this process in eradicating these kinds of infectious infectious diseases and have our finger on the pulse when it comes to mm-hmm how irresponsible uh, countries and ourselves can be when it comes to, um, you know, spreading around the virus. And as you mentioned, you know, you were saying there were other coronaviruses, SARS, MERS, uh, within the same family. Um, Why is, do you believe that this virus is different? Is it different? And is it a little bit more intense? Because Dr. Dr. Anthony Fauci um, the director of National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases says this is 10 times more uh, severe than the flu. Is that true? And is are you seeing that this virus is stronger than recent coronaviruses? Well, honestly, if Dr. Anthony Fauci said it, it's true. I would never go against anything um, he says. He is the leading expert in the nation on on this. That's for certain. Um, what I can speak to is, you know, kind of how it's different than the flu and how it's worse than the flu. Um, first off, it, it does it does definitely create a lot of asymptomatic carriers for a very a relatively long period of time. Five to seven days is not insignificant to be walking around feeling fine, potentially spreading it um, to a lot of people. That's not exactly the case with flu. You're kind of spewing virus maybe a day at most before you really get hit with all the symptoms. And so that in and of itself is more serious in terms of the spread and why such draconian measures have to be in place to stop the spread. And secondly, you know, the mortality rate, which we don't know yet because we don't have a denominator, we're not counting everybody that that's getting the disease, but some of the best estimates I've heard are actually south of 1%, so about 0.6%, but the flu has a, a case fatality or death rate, if you will, of 0.1%, maybe even less than that. So it is quite a bit more serious, you know, in the magnitude of at least sixfold um, in terms of the case fatality rate of flu. And that is if we don't overwhelm resources. Every single person who gets severely sick gets the best possible care. Of course, if we overwhelm resources, that rate goes up. So what are you doing to boost your immune system because you are very aware that you are high risk 
because you are working on the front lines of emergency rooms in the Los Angeles area day to day. So what are you doing that we can tell people at home to do in the event they do have to go outside to boost their immune system and try to ward off contracting this? Yeah, there, there's nothing that I know of that is scientifically proven that you can create at home in terms of like your homemade potion and vitamins and pills that has been shown to be this, you know, magic concoction that will boost your immune system and you can't catch any viruses. Now, that being said, there are certain things that actually are scientifically proven to boost your immune system. And that is decreasing your stress level, sleeping adequately, um, getting exercise. So a lot of people are going to go stir crazy and not know how to exercise, but figuring I've, I've actually, been on Instagram all day and I've actually seen quite a movement for all these fitness influencers that are doing videos of how to exercise at home and I think that's great I think if people can do that that's great or there's nothing wrong with going out for a run if you're not in one of those high-risk groups just go out and go for your run you're not going to catch it by inhaling air on your run down to the beach that's just not how this virus works so exercise sleeping reducing your stress level Eating well, making sure you're getting all your nutrients, um, that you don't need to supplement your vitamins, but you shouldn't be eating, you know, chicken nuggets every day, then you're not getting what you need to boost your immune system. So essentially, eat healthy, boost your own immune system, and create a, an environment where the virus is not as likely to impede your, you know, you as the host, if you will, because you're living a healthier life. And and it's true. I mean, so many people are saying, try to cut your sugar. And I think about that. I'm like, is it really worth it right now to have that extra, you know, ice cream Sunday or whatever, even though we're at home and we're bored and we're, you know, we're eating. So um, it is important to be extra vigilant when it comes to um, taking the necessary steps in boosting our own immune system. Well, listen, I am so grateful you took the time out of your day because I know this is really important for you to spread facts, not fear, yep. because there is a lot of that. There's a lot of fear mongering. There's a lot of people out there that are panic shopping and that's no better than the person that's, you know, cavalier and relaxed and not concerned about this one bit so thank you very much for your time and good luck out there we really are uh, praying for those that are fighting this on the front lines people like you and other healthcare providers that are really serving the greater good of the world but are putting themselves at risk thank you so much Aaron. a huge thank you to dr clody bolduke for taking the time to educate people more on the disease and prevention methods. If you'd like to learn more about COVID-19 and the necessary steps to keep you and your loved ones safe, follow Dr. Clody Bolduke on her medical Instagram page, PulseCheckMD. She is tirelessly learning more and more and trying to educate those about the disease and help uh, mitigate the spread of the virus. Thank you guys again for listening. Really appreciate it and stay safe. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.